Hello, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me at episode with episode for episode. Don't know my preposition. Thank you so much for joining me here, listening to episode 66 of the Creative. Welcome to the Creative Language Learning Podcast with Kirsten Cable and Lindsay Williams. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you with support from Close Master. Learning with Close Master is fun, addictive and free. The game is simple. You will see a sentence in your target language with something missing and it's your challenge to fill in the blanks. Close Master uses high frequency word lists built into sentences from real life. So everything you learn is natural content and best of all, it's always words that you're actually going to need. And what's most exciting about Close Master for me is that it's available in over 50 languages. It comes with iPhone apps and Android apps, and it works beautifully in your browser too. So you can learn anytime and anywhere and, well, not any language, but a really, really large, 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 large range of languages. And we love that. To support our show today, go to www.closemaster, that's close with a Z, dot com slash CLLP, where you will find a bonus video with Closemaster tips from me and a special voucher to use when you decide to join their pro membership. So that's Closemaster. C-L-O-Z-E master.com slash C-L-L-P. You don't need a special code, simply check it out today. Hey, language lovers, let's do this right. Welcome to episode 66 of the Creative Language Learning Podcast. I am here today and not quite giving you a solo episode, but I'm here to guide you through an episode that gives you a theme. And that theme is today using languages for good. Now, so often when we learn a language, we do it for motivations that benefit ourselves hugely in really wonderful ways. It could be learning for love, to talk to your in-laws or to talk to your partner in a new way. It could be wanting to bring up a child bilingually. It could be about just you want to go on holiday and you fell in love with a language or that you think that you will benefit yourself in your career. And I think there is also that deep, deep language learning motivation that I speak to and certainly I feel as well which is wanting to show yourself that you can do it. The intellectual challenge of foreign languages is great. It's out there. But today, the intellectual challenge motivated my two interviewees and they have taken their languages to a special place in this world. They are using their languages for good, for the love of humanity, as my first interviewee put it. In the first interview today, you are going to hear Madeline Vatkirti. Madeline and I met at the Polyglot Gathering this year in Bratislava and I missed her talk, sadly, so I invited her on the show so that we can hear a little bit more about what she has to say. In the show notes, you'll get more details. Madeline is an interpreter for survivors of torture and trauma. So this is a deep, deep way that you can use languages in a tangible way to really help people interpreting and community interpreting. I've always been quite 
close to my heart. I remember doing my master's. My master's is in translation studies. And this is many, many years ago, over 10 years ago. And I learned about the idea of community interpreting and what difference it makes when you use a trained interpreter versus using somebody who is just, you know, happens to speak that language and what difference it makes to the interpreter and also to the people who it, the interpretation is being performed for. So this is really about working in environments that you wouldn't normally think of and working with people who aren't used to having an interpreter there. It's very, very interesting. And you're going to hear and learn both about the craft and skill of interpreting, but also about what it means personally when you can use your amazing language skills to benefit other people. After that, in the second interview, you're going to hear from Marianne Mans, and I'll tell you a little bit about more about her later. But in a nutshell, Marianne organizes free German language courses for refugees. So these two women are absolutely amazing. They, they were both very inspiring interviews. I'm so glad that they took the time to talk to me. Just to give you a little heads up, in the first interview, which is with Madeline, we did have uh, a slightly hard time getting the audio to, to the stage where you're normally used to. So you will hear a little bit of street noise. You might hear a little bit of echo. But I found that Madeline was perfectly easy to understand and there isn't really much of a dip in quality. I hope that you'll bear with us um, throughout this interview and that it doesn't hamper your enjoyment too much that you will enjoy it, dear listeners, because I think this is really worthwhile. It's a valuable, amazing thing to listen to. And I'm so glad that we're doing this episode here on the podcast all the way through. I hope you feel inspired. I hope you feel touched. And I want to hear from you at any point. So please comment on the article, on the blog, send me a message on Instagram or on Twitter, wherever you might be, an email to kirsten at fluentlanguage.co.uk. Let me know what you think and what you see out there of people and opportunities to use your languages for good. Now, without further ado, I'm going to take you through to a lady who knows exactly what she's talking about when we're talking using languages for the benefit of others. Let's move on to the interview with Madeline Vodkerti. Okay, so I'm here right now with Madeline Vodkerti, who has taken a little bit of time out of her day to talk to me about one of those topics of using languages for good and the ways that we can use languages to do some good in this world. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful topic. I'm so pleased to be talking to her. Madeline first uh, sort of blipped up on my radar when she gave a presentation at the Polyglot Gathering in Bratislava this year. Her topic was um, interpreting for survivors of violence and trauma, which is pretty deep and pretty interesting. Um, and as I was sort of researching what she what she does, I found that her general field, community interpreting, is actually something I've always really loved because I did my master's dissertation on it. So I'm super excited, kind of nerding out <laughs> and just really pleased to have found such a nice person to talk about this as well. Madeleine is originally from Washington, D.C. Now she lives in Bratislava. She has interpreted into and out of English for survivors of human rights abuses at, at different survivors of torture and just people who have really gone through trauma and, you know, talking about that and then having somebody translated is obviously quite intense. And her language catalogue is just, um, 
a, a mad flurry of joyful language. I don't know. <laughs> Madeline. I don't know where to start with your languages. Maybe we'll start there. Hello, welcome to the Creative Language Learning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Do you want, do you want to just take a second and introduce your range of languages? Oh my, okay. I have studied 17 languages, including my native American English, uh, if you want to include that. Um, mostly Romance and Slavic languages, but also a couple of Germanic languages uh, and a couple of Semitic languages and uh, modern Greek. <laughs> so I'm not sure uh, where that fits, but uh, I've devoted my whole life to language learning and I'm happiest when I'm learning a foreign language. Right now I'm focusing on uh, making my Slovak good. It's good now, but I'm working on improving that right now. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're Slovak. How long have you lived in Bratislava? Well, I lived here for six years in the 1990s, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I came here thinking I'd stay here for three months. I was here for six years, and uh, I just came back this year. Amazing. Okay, so you are, how do you introduce yourself, a community interpreter? Actually, community interpreting is a small uh, segment of my career. I wish it were larger. Um, I, I guess I would just uh, introduce myself as a foreign language enthusiast who likes to use foreign languages to improve the world that we're living in. Oh, that's, I already love it. Okay, so <laughs> lots of people probably, you know, hear about interpreting and normally what you think of is sort of politicians in a meeting or perhaps a celebrity or an interpreter who supports an important business meeting. And community interpreting is really different. Can you tell us more about how and in which way it's different? Oh, I'd be very happy to do that. Um, by the way, uh, in some countries, community interpreting is also called public service interpreting, but in the United States, it's where I'm from, it's called community interpreting. And I think a good way to start would be to define what that is. Um, community interpreting basically helps people get access to community and social services. Depending on where your listeners live, these services can be provided by public funded publicly funded organizations, for-profit entities, nonprofits, or any combination of, of those three places. Typical examples of community interpreting include medical, mental health, educational, social services, certain kinds of legal situations, faith-based interpreting, Interpreting conducted in conflict and disaster zones and interpreting for refugees. Wow. And it's a wonderful, wonderful field. Excuse me for um, I get very enthusiastic about it. You're right. Most people have heard of conference interpreters. Uh, they are the ones that are best well known. But community interpreting is a growing field because of the kind of world that we're living in today where there's a lot of migration and a lot of issues around uh, seeking asylum. Uh, in community, in conference interpreting, excuse me, usually there's someone to switch off with. And it's better paid, I think, uh, conference interpreting than community interpreting. Mm -hmm. In community interpreting, you're alone. 
So it would be uh, me and a provider. And in my case, I worked with asylum seekers, people who were uh, harmed by their governments for promoting democracy, human rights, and freedom, and were uh, tortured and suffered human rights abuses um, in their in their countries, and they were they left uh, usually for for fear of their lives. Uh, so I would be alone in the room. I had no one to switch off with, and sometimes it would be a couple of hours uh, before an appointment would end. So in that sense, it's different. Conference interpreters have the luxury of switching off every half hour. Also, um, conference interpreting has is a more developed field. Uh, you can actually get a degree in conference interpreting. That doesn't exist at this point in time. In the U.S., for example, it's there are degrees in European countries for this, mm-hmm. but we have more like certification programs, which might be 40 hours or 60 hours, which is really not a whole lot of time. And with conference interpreting, you have all kinds of rules and norms. Community interpreting is a new field, and there is a lot of disagreement within the field itself about what the field should look like. Okay, so I w- I'm curious. I want to take it back for a second to what you mentioned about interpreting for asylum seekers and people who have been people who have been persecuted and pursued in a really negative way for promoting democracy in their own country and we've you know we've just heard all this massive list and i think it's it's easy to hear a list and you know like you can't really imagine a person for that so can you describe what it might be like in your in your everyday work who you interpret for and why it matters like who needs to hear this um Yeah, let me let me expand on that a little bit. Uh, and this is only just speaking from my own experience. People have been harmed by their governments for all kinds of reasons. And where I used to work um, at Advocates for Survivors of Torture and Trauma, we used the United Nations definition because we used to receive funding from them and they had requirements. Basically, the people that uh, we helped had been harmed by their governments, uh, and that could even include during a police interrogation. It isn't necessarily uh, by the interior services of of a given country, although that happened as well. Um, People who simply sometimes ran for political office or people who were harmed for their sexual orientation and were taken to prison and harmed in prison or by police. Uh, People who were dissidents or who belonged to political parties that were not favored by the government are good examples of that, I think. Yeah. So it's it's probably the case that without you there to help this person tell their story and sort of not just tell their story in an inspirational way, but actually to help this person speak out and prove what's happened to them, it might have an impact on their life. And it may, in many cases, save their life because that's the way to get refuge and shelter if you're coming to a European country as a, as a refugee or to the USA. 
Right. Um, I think that what you said about proving what happened to them um, is critical because I was very often in situations where I worked with uh, social workers and psychologists. And very often the things that would come out in our conversations were used in affidavits that were presented to our immigration authorities in the United States. So getting it 100% right, there's a lot of pressure to get it right. Because if there is, um, if what you have interpreted is not correct, and then they, this person is in a situation in immigration court, for example, and the judge sees two different sets of information, they might think, aha, this person is not necessarily telling the truth. So there was some pressure there um, in order to get it correct. Uh, you had asked why it's important to give voice to such people um, who've been through these things. And it really was wonderful for me doing this work um, to be part of a team of people who helped other people heal and come through what they had been through. These people are people who put their lives on the line. And it's so important to honor people who do that in order to promote a lofty goal, like promoting human rights or democracy or freedom. It was, for me, it was very eye-opening. I had grown up in a democratic system all my life. And one that's been, that I, I think I can confess that I took for, for granted somewhat. But um, it made me realize that there are people who are incredibly brave, who are just trying to make the world a better place and, and who, who suffered for it. Um, another reason why it's so important to give voice to victims of torture and uh, war trauma is that these people very often bring incredible gifts with them. And at least in the United States, I read recently an article that after seven years, these people who receive asylum become taxpayers, and they're more than happy to give back. I remember an Ethiopian woman saying to me, I want to pay taxes to this country. I want to help defend this country for taking me in. I never hear anyone from the United States saying, I want to pay my taxes. It's mm -hmm. just, it's beautiful. I mean, in, in a way. And uh, they, we did some analysis of the people that we helped and discovered that a very large number uh, went back to school or found, I think 96% of the people we helped found employment. and. 55% went into helping professions. That's, I think, such a important filter to put on refugees because often the way we see refugees is um, almost de dehumanizing. And, you know, so giving them a voice and giving them the opportunity and the, you know, the empowerment to kind of come and give back is great. You mentioned there 
um, you know, the, 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 your, we, your employer and the institute where you work. Um, and for the listeners of the creative language learning podcast, can you just go into who you work for right now and how you got involved in, in the field? Okay, well, I can tell you that the place that I worked for no longer exists, the Advocates for Survivors of Torture and Trauma. They were located in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. At present, in Bratislava, I work uh, fundraising for two nonprofit organizations, uh, one that promotes uh, democracy and a, an appreciation for democratic institutions, and the other is a Holocaust Remembrance and Documentation Center. Uh, so. At the moment, I'm using uh, Slovak language skills in a different context, but that other position existed. Um, I was part of that for about two and a half or three years. And then, unfortunately, the organization had to close its doors. Wow. So this this genuine, you know, genuine funding, it's not that you're working for a government or... Um I don't know, like the UN or something like that. These are really small, non-governmental organizations. Some are larger than others, but the one that I wound up in was was very small. There were six or seven people. And uh, in addition to the interpreting, I was also their fundraiser. And uh, I found that being in the room with people who were talking about their experiences and interpreting for them made me a better fundraiser because I came to understand what these people were really dealing with. And my fundraising proposals were stronger as a result. Mm. How do you deal with the emotions that it brings up to, to interpret somebody's story when they tell you about how they were tortured just for running for political office? I can tell you that um, one of the things that one has to learn how to do, actually there are two things I would say. One is that... Um, Learning how to take care of yourself or self-care for interpreters in a situation like that is critical. Uh, whether that means um, exercising more or finding some other outlet to deal with all the emotions. Because I would lie awake in my bed at night and wonder how they dealt with being... These people were, almost all of them were... At 99.999% um, were separated from their loved ones. And at sometimes they didn't know where their families were. I remember one woman who um, had four daughters and they were all in different villages and they were always moving all the time for their protection. And as a mother myself, I thought, Gosh, you know, I would worry sometimes when my son would go to a sleepover at someone else's house. <laughs> and here's this woman who's, you know, really does bring certain things home. Um, at a certain point, I realized that I needed to pamper myself or do something nice for myself uh, to work through some of that. And I also needed to understand that I was an instrument to help someone heal. And that made dealing with a lot of the more difficult things that I would hear about easier to bear. Mm -hmm. I did hear some terrible stories while I was interpreting. The other thing is that I needed to, the second thing is that I needed to figure out a way to cope with a desire to cry 
that would sometimes come up. Uh, I even get emotional thinking about it right now. And I remember that one time, uh, all three of us, myself, the psychologist, and the person we were helping, we all just had tears running down our faces. And I looked at the person and I simply said to her, your story moved me greatly. And then we just proceeded and kept going on. You, we are human beings, and it's very hard sometimes to hear about suffering. But I also learned at a certain point that I should never show pity. And if I do cry, to simply say something to the person about having been deeply moved and then just go forward. Mm, that's incredible. And I mean, one of the questions I had for you, um, I think you've already answered, which is, do you feel like you're using languages for good? And the more you talk about it, the more um, the impact, the, the great impact of the work that you do becomes becomes apparent. Um, so I want to ask you this. Um, some people might listen to this and they think, oh, yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, that's very noble. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, making the world a better place. Good for her. But I don't want to do this because could I actually... These people don't get paid, right? How do I make a living? Is this a true feeling? Well, I can tell you that um, what I know about uh, the United States, and uh, I will say... First and foremost, I don't know that people go into community interpreting for the money. Uh, I think that I went into it for the love of humanity and really wanting to feel like, yes, I am making a real difference. Um, I had previously worked for six years at the Holocaust Museum and promoting tolerance and uh, knowledge of Holocaust history, which is a, a wonderful goal also. But what I loved about this is that it really touched individual lives in a very concrete way. I can only tell you uh, what I know about the market for this kind of employment in the United States, but the average annual salary for someone doing this kind of work in the U.S. runs anywhere from 45000 to 65000 U.S. dollars a mm -hmm. year. So it's not, it's not the big riches, but it's livable. Absolutely. Um, but... Uh, I also saw another statistic that I think is really interesting. Whereas some fields are contracting and getting smaller, the community interpreting field is getting larger and larger. And by 2024, uh, they believe that I saw some statistics that the field will expand by 29%. So it's a growing field and it's also a very rewarding and good field. And if somebody listening is sort of considering or thinking they are feeling inspired, but they worry that their linguistic or language skills might not be up to par, that you'd have to be practically bilingual or somebody who is a polyglot, say somebody like Madeline who speaks 17 <laughs> languages and, you know, it's just really good at all of them, etc. Um, can, if somebody who hasn't grown up bilingual, which means they don't have maybe a natural feel for every language. And it feels, if one of the languages still feels foreign, can that person still make a good interpreter? In my personal belief, I don't think so. You do need to know your target language well. And you, depending on the part of the field that you go into, like I had mentioned, medical or mental health or educational, 
uh, or social services, you, you do need to develop a vocabulary. And over time, I developed a pretty strong vocabulary uh, related to um, human rights abuses and things like that. So I would say that you do need to have facility in either sign language or another language in order to do the work well. Mm -hmm. And what would somebody discourage anybody out there? But um, <laughs> I, you know, I also want to give you a real answer to, to that question. Yeah, well, there's there's standards in this type of work, and in a way, when when the work matters this much, you may you may say that the standards really matter. I do believe that they do. Uh, if you don't understand something and you want to make sure that you understand, you can actually stop the conversation and tell the provider and the person you're helping that you need to clarify something. But you, you don't want to do that a hundred times an hour. That's very true. So what might somebody, well, what might somebody do and what sort of, are there any other skills they need to look for? What would be sort of the first step? Because um, I would love to, I would love to encourage people to, to give this a go if you feel, if you feel moved by your story. Well, I would say that the first thing to do, which is the first thing I do in just about any situation I go into, is to see what kind of learning resources exist where you are. There are also online courses for learning. And as I mentioned, in my country, you're mostly going to find certificate programs, like a 40-hour program or a 60-hour program. Some fields, I believe medical interpreting is developing a minimum of either 80 or 100 hours of training before going in to interpret in a medical situation. So either find uh, a degree program or a, an online program for a certificate so that you can learn things like the code of ethics and what is considered a best practice in, in the field uh, so that you can know what your what you're getting into. Um, one of the things I'll send you is a link to some free documentation on all of these subjects that your listeners can look up and they're all free. Uh, there is a wonderful uh, guide for interpreting for survivors of violence and trauma, including people who have uh, survived uh, domestic violence situations. And You can, anybody can take a look at them, print them out on their computer and, and look at them. But I would gather some resources about the field itself and then look, look to see what's out there where you, where you live. Mm -hmm. And this could be, this could be anywhere in the world. So it doesn't, you don't have to live in Bratislava. Oh, no, <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, it could, it can be anywhere. Fantastic. Well, that's that's it for our time and my questions. And Madeline, your your stories and your you know what you're sharing about community interpreting has been incredibly interesting. Just for me, it's really opened. It's only opened the door to a field that I want to know so much more about. And I hope that for our listeners, it's been 
the start to an insight in one of the ways that people do use languages out there for good. And just like you say, for the love of humanity. I love that. So thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me. It was my pleasure. Excellent. Well, I shall put all the links you sent me in the show notes. And if listeners want to find the show notes, I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Okay. Goodbye, Madeline. Goodbye. Thank you. Hey guys, that was the interview with Madeline Vatkerti and I'm sure you'll agree with me that she is an incredibly impressive woman with a lot of stories to tell. I thought there was a lot of interesting content in there from, from her about what interpreting for this particular group is all about, how community interpreting differs from, say, conference interpreting and uh, particularly, I think, I found it was really I found it really striking that she spoke about how to look after yourself emotionally and how to stay out of you know those those steps of empathy where it goes a little bit too far. Now, my next guest and next interview also touched on that topic because when you are using languages for good and you're losing, using it with people who need your support and need your language skills, it it really is something that factors in there that the emotional attachment that you can develop can affect your work or can start factoring into this in a way that you never normally would. So professional detachment is a skill when it comes to using your languages for good. And I think that's partly because language is such a deep part of human communication and it is a wonderful feeling for somebody who is learning a language, as you guys know, who wants to express themselves for the first time in the language of their new country. So with that, I want to take you to my next interview uh, from a, with a lady who is exactly making it possible for people to express themselves in the language of the country they have just not moved to, not chosen to go to, not gone on holiday, not gone on a gap year, but no, they've just run away from danger, from a horrible situation. They are refugees and they arrived in Germany. And when Germany took in many, many refugees in 2015, a lot of small communities sprang into action. And among them is Marianne's community. And Marianne is a, a German lady. So we spoke a little bit of German to each other before this interview, but you will hear the English portion because I think a lot of people will get a bit irritated if I put... <laughs> <laughs> six hours of German into this show, or even six minutes. So, you know, if you disagree and you want to hear more German, please get in touch. Um, however, let's move on to Marianne. Marianne is um, a school teacher who is taking her love of teaching a love of language to sort of a new level. And in the in the chat that we had before the interview, she told me, "Well, I went to Jordan once, where there was a school of." untrained Arabic teachers and they were all just volunteering they were all just there you know teaching us Arabic because they thought it was a, a good idea for religious reasons you know whatever they wanted to share what they have and when the refugees came in I thought we well, can do that too so in my interview she tells me how it went and I'm really looking forward to presenting this to you guys before we move on, just a quick reminder that the Creative Language Learning Podcast, this episode, is sponsored and supported by Close Master. Woo! If you want a language learning app that delivers and keeps you hooked, 
you need to get on Closemaster. It's super addictive and it's open to this huge range of language learners because it supports 50 languages, but not just that, 190 possible language combinations. So you can work with more than just one language. You can actually learn from French into Spanish or from Danish into Norwegian or whatever language pair is out there. Closemaster has got it for you and it's it sort of takes your language learning to a more polyglot level and who of you listeners of the podcast wouldn't love that. Closemaster comes with iPhone and Android apps and it's completely free so you can learn anytime and anywhere to support our show and get your hands on that cool app. Uh, go to closemaster.com. Closemaster is spelled with a Z, so C-L-O-Z-E-M-A-S-T-E-R.com slash C-L-L-P, where you will find a bonus video of me guiding you through my favorite features and a special voucher to use if you decide to try out their pro membership. That's it. And now let's listen to Marianne. So I'm very happy and excited to be here with my second guest for today. My second guest is is Marianne Manz and Marianne is a native German speaker who is doing amazing and so so interesting work. She I actually heard from her directly. Marianne got in touch with me years ago when when I was doing more German courses when I was working on the German pronunciation class when I was working on German grammar courses and she contacted me through my parents website in Germany it's so funny um, because always people contact me and they say how can I buy wine from your parents but nobody ever contacted my parents and said how can we get in touch with your daughter so I was very proud <laughs> that was in the beginning when we started doing mm -hmm. German courses we knew that uh, refugees would come and I was just googling and trying to get all information I can ever get and so I got you And we thought that refugees could do more via the internet, but it didn't work out because uh, they only have uh, Aldi Talk mm -hmm. um, and uh, no WLAN and uh, yeah, there's, there's no there's no Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi, okay, and therefore it didn't work out. Yes, it was a, it was a really interesting idea, and I could tell straight away that. From Marianne came this huge amount of enthusiasm. So she got in touch with me and here's what she said. She said, we are a very small local association of volunteers and we are going to start offering German courses for refugees and asylum seekers who are arriving in Germany. And I thought, oh my God, wow, that really is using languages for good. Marianne is a former religious education teacher And she told me that she once went to Jordan and she she learned a bit of Arabic in this school that was run just by volunteers. And when she heard that the asylum seekers, it was a very large amount in 2015, would come in and would arrive in, in Germany, she thought, well, we can do that. Maybe we can do that. So and then started organizing and founding the AG Deutsch or Deutsch AG. Yeah. Um, And Marianne, tell me, what does the Deutsche AG do exactly now? Uh, we just started the new school year. And you can hear in the media that uh, we don't need um, 
so much language done by uh, volunteers anymore because uh, there are much less uh, refugees coming now. And we thought, well, we did it for two years. Maybe they come five or six. And yes, and then we had the first day, and we had more than forty adults coming. Mm -hmm. uh, three, two thirds of them um, were women, and they brought their children. So we had more than sixteen children um, from baby via uh, toddler to school children. And some of our work is now taking care of the children that the women can learn. Women can't go to the uh, courses when they have many children or uh, any other problem. They can't go to the courses run by the state, so they come to us and they bring all those children. Wow. And do you have, so you have, you still have a lot of people. How many people do you teach every week? Hmm, maybe about 50, it's now, I, I, we really can't tell because it's no sense uh, writing them on. Because every time there's a lesson, they have to think, will I come or won't I come? So um, we can't force them to come. And sometimes we have very many and sometimes we have only a few. Mm -hmm. And do you... So you teach German courses, you look after mm -hmm. the kids, and when you first started, what what did you think, how did you think it might make a difference to people? <laughs> I didn't think about it, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I, I just thought it was necessary for them to learn German. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, It did make a difference because uh, we had people coming from Syria and they got into the uh, courses run by the state. And we had people from Afghanistan who couldn't get into those courses. And this was uh, socially very bad because some got everything and the others got nothing. And I think it was very good that we could learn with the Afghans. And the first round of Afghans, they were very, really keen on learning because they saw all those Syrians going into state-run courses <laughs> and they only had... They were so brilliant. I said one thing just uh, in the lesson... Uh, which I didn't meant actually, but n next time they they learned it by heart. It was really I never had such uh, eager uh, pupils at all. Wow! So it and do you think it's um, so we, even within the group of refugees, if somebody is from country A and somebody's from country B, there are differences in how they're treated. What about the the Germans in your community? Because where you live, it's not so big, right? Mm hmm. Um. Yes, some are in favor of refugees and some are against it, like mm. everywhere. Yeah, and why do you think it's important for Germany to teach German to refugees when they arrive? Because they have to survive <laughs> and they have to integrate and they can't do it without language. So do you have any examples of integration or where the German makes a concrete difference? Yes, I have. Um There was one of our pupils who done really bad and he did one course and then he got into another course and now normally at this time we wouldn't allow it because there were too many but he was so poor in his German that we allowed him okay he can do two courses and he just survived the course and um, then he tried to get a job 
um, doing the dishes in some gray, uh, in some big kitchen. And there were three people and he got the job because he knew basic German. And he was so thankful to us that he got the job. Oh, and he didn't really, he didn't really even work hard in the classes, but still he, he had the chance. He did work hard, but he, but he just, uh, people from Afghanistan usually haven't much education. They went to school like three, four years, sometimes mm. six years, and, um, they're doing quite, some of them doing quite poorly. Yeah. Mm. So every week, how many courses do you offer? How many hours is it possible yes. for your group? Yes, two or three. It depends mm. how many people we are who can teach, actually. Ah, fantastic. So the Deutsch AG, it works entirely with volunteers. You don't have any paid staff members. No. What's the, what's the best thing about working like that? The best thing? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we can imagine, we can imagine the, the, you know, it's difficult. It's a lot of sacrifice for everybody involved. But is there something that's like the best thing about it? No, it's it's actually great fun. Uh, I learned to know a lot of Germans who I wouldn't have known before. They live right next to us, but I wouldn't have known. But we are working together. We have to sometimes we have to cope with each other, but it's also great fun learning uh, quite a lot of new people. And also, you learn to know the refugees much better than if you go like for a coffee and you don't know what to talk, you're really working on something and sometimes you're laughing, sometimes you're doing things that just wouldn't work out and we tried many, many things, but it's just great fun learning to know those people and, and just uh, struggling to, to, to get the language into them and they struggle to understand us. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it sounds like quite a happy job to do. Is it... Is it always happy or is it sometimes, does it make you very sad? Yes, yeah, sometimes it makes us sad when people stay away. Uh-huh. When we just, yeah, when, when we, it's hard, we do, because we often don't know how many people come. And when many people come, I try to get more, more teachers. <coughs> But, uh, sometimes they just stay away, like in winter, it's cold, they don't want to walk so far. And also it's, uh, a question of uh, standard of learning. Yeah. If our teaching is just too poor, they they realize and some say, well, we don't come. Or if sometimes they didn't learn and they can't follow anymore, they wouldn't come and uh, there are many reasons and that's sometimes sad. Yes. That's, that you, you are touching on something that I find really fascinating, which is that in your work, You are not just a German teacher, but you're also a teacher trainer. <laughs> ah, but, but I'm doing very poor about it. The problem is everybody thinks he can teach German. <laughs> And um, it's not like that. And what I do is we have a homepage and I'm uh, doing outlines for the courses that we teach. So like on one day we have three groups for beginners and they are all working with the same outlines. We didn't want to do that before. That was one of our teachers who invented that because she had uh, many young teachers like my son is 16 and they didn't, they just need to have those outlines. And the young teachers did actually very well. Mm -hmm. um, 
they made a group for two, also two teachers and uh, a group. And one was reading the outline and one was teaching. So they just uh, um, switched all the time and that uh, that worked out quite well. But then we uh, had some older teachers and they just thought, well, oh, internet, oh, I don't have time. And they just came and wanted to teach and were not prepared and uh, were not willing just to get into our system. And that was difficult. And our uh, pupils, they uh, experienced that. And if someone is not prepared, you can do it once, but they realize and that they don't learn anything. Yes, that's very true. I think you you know the the teacher's skill I found this even when I'm working with um adults who are you know have busy life and they're English and they thought oh maybe I want to learn a bit of German if you're not prepared as the teacher and if you're not confident that you know what you are doing it's really hard to take everybody with you. Yeah, that's so, true. So what makes it maybe a little bit harder or easier about the fact that they are refugees? Is, does it make it different? Is it a different group of learners? Hmm. It's a different group of people anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it's hard to explain. When I started, and, and, and even now it often happens to me that I come from the lesson and I'm completely emotional. Um, I have lots of feelings and somehow you can feel, um, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult to explain. It's so human. Say they are so, um, just on a very basic level human and they are so needy and, uh, and that's emotionally completely different from just normal people. I don't know if you can make anything of that. It's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. oh, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Okay, I have a question for you. Um, so, because I, I work with so many English speakers who, you know, grow up English and the English people have an advantage because the world speaks English. Mm. You and I, we are speaking English now. Um, a lot of English speakers, they say to me, oh, German is so difficult. <laughs> Do you think teaching German is different from teaching English? Do you think sometimes, oh, I wish I was in England and then the refugees have to learn English? Or do you think teaching German, it doesn't matter which language, as long as they are there to learn? I wouldn't teach English because my English isn't good enough. Um, no, uh, yes, it's my mother's tongue. Uh, of course, there are the articles, which is always a problem. And um, uh, what I do now is um, I have... Uh, little pieces of paper with der, die, das. And uh, when we do nouns, um, we usually have pictures or we have items, uh, the real items, like yesterday we had plates and forks and, and, and glasses and all that stuff on the, on the table. And we learn it, like I said, das ist ein Glas, das ist eine Tasse. Wo ist das Glas? Wo ist die Tasse? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, we do it with about 12 nouns. And afterwards, I have all those things and I have those uh, three little sheets of paper and they have to uh, sort out which is die, which is der, which is das. Because even people that have done other courses before, yeah, before they know the vocab, but they don't know the articles. And we have to make sure that they learn the articles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, articles are, I think they are a problem for everybody who's learning German. 
So, and this is, I think you're giving a really great example as well of your, your different teaching methods because you have had to learn different language teaching methods and tried them and some of them work and some of them don't, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, when we have started, actually, we have no one who understood our language. Uh, some of them wow. knew a bit of English, but it was very, very poor. And what helped us was the message by the um, method by Greg Thompson, uh, who works with the Wycliffe Bible translators. He has a message that um, uh, takes a model in, in, in natural language learning, and it starts with listening, very much of listening, not talking. The idea behind it is uh, when you let ten people talk, like. Uh, weiß ich was, uh, say like guten tag and you say it right one time but when you have all those people let talk let let it talk yeah say it wrong they, hear, they say it they hear it nine times wrong uh -huh. uh -huh. they hear all the other refugees making all the same mistakes and so um, he has developed the message with listening. I, uh, that means we say the vocab and they have to point out which is the right one. And that was perfect for the ones who didn't know our language because this way we could see, ah, they have understood or no, they have, they didn't understand. And they, when we could repeat it long enough till they uh, understood. So it was very basic understanding which we had right from the beginning. Oh, wow. So you have learned in the last two years. It, it sounds extremely rewarding. You have done so much work coordinating all the people, teaching people who are 16 and teaching people who are 60 to teach German and obviously working with the refugees. So I have one final question for you. In your work, do you feel like you are using languages for good? Yes, of course. <laughs> and do you, did you, would you want other people to get involved in their own countries? How can, you know, where would be the first place people could look? Um, yes, I, I think Greg Thompson's work is great. We don't use everything, but uh, have a look into it and uh, just take anything which is valuable that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Okay, well, Greg Thompson, you are going to find in the show notes for this episode. And I'm also going to include a link to AG or to AG Deutsch, Deutsch AG. I think yeah. the, the URL is AG-Deutsch. It's a website in German, but that is the website of Marianne's Association Teaching German. So if you're interested in that, you it would help if you're a German speaker. But it's a really, it's a great website. And you can see the resources that she puts out for her teachers. And you learned WordPress in, in this as well, Marianne, right? Yes. <laughs> so this is amazing. Just so, so much um, work has gone into this. I'm so, so impressed. And if you would like to... Um, perhaps send them some encouragement or send them a message, send them some money. You can do it through the website. You can send it to me and I will pass it on. And I'm also going to include the Facebook page of an associated um, club called Hominum International, um, which again is in German. It's a teeny tiny charity in Germany, but that's how you can support Marianne's work. Marianne, thank you so, so much. Yes, thank you. <laughs> also. 
Hey guys, welcome back with me, Kirsten, and I have just finished the interview with Marianne, and what a wonderful interview it was, and I'm so proud, really, that we got to speak to these amazing people today, Madeleine Vatkerti and Marianne Mantz in Bratislava and in Germany, both of them working in their own way on using languages for good. Now, you might have noticed in the interview, I tried to ask each of them how people who are listening to the show today, that's you guys, and that's that's me, and that's all of us, can use our love of language just like they are doing so we can do a little bit of good in the world and really feel better about ourselves. And because that was that's kind of the first point I got out of both of my interviews. Both of these women are loving what they do. And when you are contributing to the world, when you are using your language for good, it's not just about your benefit anymore. You know, you start benefiting as well, but you're giving to others and then you are benefiting again from having given to others. So you get to, you know, on the one hand, you get to nerd out about your favorite topic and you get to share your favorite topic, you get to teach, get to interpret, get to perhaps translate or really, you know, guide um, people around a place that you love. You know, you get to help somebody in need, which feels fantastic, and you still get better at your language. So that's my first point here, really, which is you can get so much out of giving to others. And I we can hear it in the voices. These are people who really have a sense of mission, a sense of accomplishment and connection with what they're doing. I love that. A uh, second point is that you don't have to do this full time. We had the example of Madeline, obviously, who has dedicated a lot of her working life to, um, at first, I think it was translating for the Holocaust Memorial Center, and then her career transitioned into becoming this interpreter for survivors of torture and trauma. But this isn't something that you have to do full time. You can fit this into your life. And if you choose to volunteer, like Marianne does, uh, you can you can actually run a whole center on maybe a few hours a week. So there is intense dedication, commitment. There is sacrifice on both of their parts, you know, undeniably. But at the same time, it doesn't have to take over your life. You can kind of dip your toe in this and see how you feel about using your languages for good if you choose to do this. And I thought that was great to hear that in both of their voices. Now, the... Next thing that really stood out to me was that you need and you really have to work on the other skills. Just being great at language is a prerequisite. It's it's a given. You know, you don't have to be perfect at the start, but to share your language skills with others, you've got to be quite good at it, really, because you have, you want to make sure you're sharing what what will work for them and you're really benefiting them instead of just furthering yourself. However, interpreting, taking care of yourself, staying safe, learning how to learning how to deal with people whose situation has put them into into a state of need and uh, it, you know who have stories to tell that's that are so emotionally affecting um, or learning to teach, learning how to train teachers who have never learned to teach before and still think they can do it all. 
<laughs> like Marianne. These are challenges that kind of just come at you when you're doing this and they will both you need those other skills you need to be able to interpret you need to be able to teach and they will take those and grow them for you and i think it's really both stories have shown me how much our what we think of as the secondary skill the interpreting or the teaching or the translating how much we can further that by putting it to the test and using it for with people who really need that um which is a fascinating insight and i thought it was really fantastic and finally um this was sort of my my main tip that really came out of this number one volunteer maybe even consider going into into all of these there are paid positions in all of these but they you can start as a volunteer dip your toe in it um, and secondly work with others things become better more emotionally involving deeper when we start working together with other people when we start opening up giving and just spending a little bit of time perhaps away from the computer um looking in each other's eyes and really putting our whole to the task of making somebody else feel better so when you give when you commit when you're kind of out there and you get together with other people who want to do this as well you meet a lot of really cool people and you connect with people in a way that you didn't even you didn't even think was in your range of possibility so this is really a way of pushing yourself out of the comfort zone as well as pushing your skills and furthering your skills let alone it looks pretty good on a resume so there are so many reasons to use your language for good and i would absolutely love to hear from you what did you think about this episode which was a little bit different and what did you think about you know when you're looking around what did you think where can you help is there anywhere that you could step in is there anything that you could do um, or is there anything that you would like to do at some point in the future to use your language or any other skill that you have for good or do you see somebody who is doing that I would absolutely love to hear your feedback this episode was um, perhaps a little bit of an experiment I wanted to bring you these these two interviews I think these both of these women are incredibly impressive they are inspiring and it's really it takes us out of the framework of how can I get fluent quickly so I can converse with somebody on my holidays um, and puts it into the bigger global perspective that we are here we are out here to connect with people if you found this episode interesting and inspiring i also recommend the episode of the creative language learning podcast that interview that was that featured an interview of wikitongues that was conducted by Lindsay. wikitongues is a language preservation um society or language um documentation <laughs> sorry went blank then language documenting and preservation effort and i'm going to put that in the show notes as well so you could check that out too um lots of ideas lots of inspiration i hope you really really enjoyed it and you can send me your comments simply by commenting on the podcast at fluentlanguage.co.uk slash blog that's where you will find this podcast episode or simply go to podcast.fluentlanguage.co.uk or you can find me as always on twitter i'm really looking forward to hearing from you guys final word don't forget to check out our 
generous, wonderful sponsors. My friend Mike, who runs Clothes Master. Mike from Clothes Master is awesome. Clothes Master is awesome. It's free. It's addictive. It should be on your phone if you learn languages. So check that one out as well. And if you're teaching, maybe use it with your students. Why not? If you're volunteering. <laughs> that's it from me and i'm so glad that you listened goodbye and i'll see you in episode 67 thanks for listening to the creative language learning podcast guys don't forget to leave us a rating in itunes and also to subscribe and please get in touch and tell us what you thought of the episode and our topics on twitter we are at ld languages and at fluent language so we're easy to find Or you can send me an email to Kirsten, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N, at fluentlanguage.co.uk. 